It is a privilege to be with all of you today. I want you to take your Bibles, join me first in Genesis 9. We're going to be in chapter 10 as well. We're going to move back and forth between them. We're going to get started here today in Genesis chapter 9 as we look toward finishing the very first section, part one of our Genesis study. And we will pick up with part two in January after the holidays. But we're going to wind it down with a very, very important passage today. And I am reminded as we open the Word of God together that we do so freely. And that is due in large part to the sacrifices and the commitment of the men and women of our armed forces. And we are grateful for what they do to ensure these freedoms for us today. And so we do honor them today. Amen. Thank you all. And as we celebrate a day like today, it is a day of national pride that is tied to that. And we see these flags waving, these American flags that we have. Uh, Many of you have little flags in your possession, uh, and there's some out front. When you think about nationhood, have you ever wondered where that concept found its origin? Like, why Do we have all of these various nations around the world? Uh, How is it that we're not all just, you know, one big world and we all just kind of hail from planet Earth? What is it that has brought about these various boundaries and identities? Well, that is what we're going to talk about today because we're looking at a passage in Genesis 10 primarily that is called the Table of Nations. The Table of Nations. And this may be the only time you ever hear this text taught. It's not something that gets preached on a lot, quite frankly. Uh, There are not a lot of morning devotions that come out of Genesis 10. There's not much spiritual reflection on names like uh, Kaftorim and Dodanim and Nimrod. How many of you have ever been called a Nimrod before? Yeah, well, that name has far more fearsome connotations than you might think, and we're going to get to that eventually. Uh, But this is a genealogy today, and it's a very important genealogy, and some people find those dull, some people find those boring. But is it true what 2 Timothy 3.16 says, that all Scripture is inspired of God and is profitable? You believe that all of Scripture comes from God and is profitable? Even the genealogies, Pastor Scott, yes. And there has, in fact, been a renewed interest in genealogies among many people over the last several years. People just want to know where they came from. They want to know who they're descended from. We want to know, are we royalty? Do we come from nobility? When I was in college, I traveled with a music group, and we ended up going on tour in the Czech Republic. And I remember we had some downtime in the Czech Republic, and a bunch of us took a tour of a cathedral. We were in this city called Brno. And we toured this cathedral, and beneath that cathedral, there were a series of crypts. And these crypts, you you could see into them, and many of them had coffins propped up against the wall, and presumably there were bodies in those coffins, I can only assume. And above each crypt was embossed the name of the family entombed there. And lo and behold, there was a crypt that had the name Grimm which happens to be my last name. And I kid you not, the coffins in the Grimm family crypt were all about this tall. (laughs) That's right. They were the smallest coffins, the shortest coffins in the whole cathedral, you know. But we are all interested in where we come from, you know. We want to know 
who we're descended from. Now, that could be a dangerous thread to pull at if you've ever spent a little too much time on Ancestry.com. You can delve too deeply, find out things you didn't want to know. Find out, wait a minute, I'm not descended from George Washington or Joan of Arc. Uh, I come from some flat-out rascals. There's some bad behavior in this family. There's some illegitimate children and infidelity and this and that. And maybe you found out your last name isn't really the name that should be your last name. And there's a lot of that 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 comes with learning. But here's what I know. Every single person in this room, you can trace your lineage back to Noah. Every, I mean, heck, you can go back to Adam, right? But everyone is related to this man named Noah. There's just no getting around that. He was, after the flood, the progenitor of the human race. If you believe your Bible, and I do. And uh, if that's you and you're thinking about that, if there really is an Adam and Eve and a Noah and all this, then you might be wondering, where do all of these different people groups come from? Where do we get all of these races Why are there all of these white people and black people and Asian people and Latino people and so on and so forth? If the Bible comes from one man, how did all of that and all of these nations come about? Well, this is the book of beginnings, Genesis, and we've seen the beginning of several things. We've seen the beginning of the earth and of the universe and of the oceans and of plant life and animal life and man. We've seen the first of many different things. We've seen the first permission ever granted. We've seen the first question ever asked. We've seen the first lie ever told. We've seen the first sin committed. And we've seen the beginning of institutions, the institution of marriage and of family and of sacrifice. And last week we saw the institution of human government uh, that was uh, conceived by God. And now at the end of this chapter, chapter 10, we're going to see the beginning of nations, nations, because in Acts 17, 26, it says, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. And so we're going to see that Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And from these three boys are going to come all peoples who ever lived. And God is going to orchestrate they're, they're compartmentalizing into different peoples and different nations. And we're going to learn something about God, about man, and about God's Word. And I think it's going to be an interesting study. You're going to have to bear with me because there's a lot of names that will pop up. But my goal is that, that you will learn about all those aforementioned things, and, and you might even learn where you came from. All right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask your blessing upon our time in your Word, God, and I believe it's all inspired and I believe it's all profitable. Uh, Even the parts that some people may consider to be the flyover country of the Bible, that they just as soon skip. But God, you you don't want us to skip. You want us to look and drink deep from this word that is so powerful. And we ask your blessing upon our timing in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So we start in Genesis 9. We're going to start in verse 20. And to set the stage here, this is about 50 years after the ark lands. And it's not just eight people on a boat anymore. It's more than just Noah and his three sons and their wives. By now, you've got likely a very small community on the earth. Maybe it's a large community. How do you know that, Pastor Scott? Well, later, Noah is going to reference the fourth-born son of Ham. And so we see that there have been some childbirths. There, there is a repopulation taking place on the earth. 
But we're going to look at this text that, that, as I've said, a lot of people skip over. But I want you to understand this text matters. And it matters for three reasons. And I'm going to show them to you today. And along the way, we are going to learn about the different races and the different nations that have emerged on the earth. But the first reason that this text is important in your notes is because it demonstrates that the problem with man is still man. The problem with man is still man. We noticed last week that God instituted human government. Well, I'm here to tell you that was not the solution to man's problem. Contrary to what they might think in Washington, D.C., government did not fix things for man. I think it added to the problem, in fact, right? But here's what we see in Genesis 9, verse 20, that Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And so this is how we start today, folks, with, a, with an old, drunk, naked man. <laughs> All right? I told you genealogies can be disappointing. You learn things you didn't want to know. Here's Noah. Oh, man, we all thought Noah was this righteous man. I mean, he walked with God, and here he is in a drunken stupor in the buff. How did this possibly happen? Now, historically, religious people have done their very best to help Noah out here. They've tried to explain how he could have found himself in such a situation. And one theory is that, well, you know, the, the vapor canopy above the earth, after the flood, it had condensed fully. And so as a result, uh, there's a far greater air pressure, you know. And uh, the result of that is that it, it became much easier for wine to ferment. And that's why Noah became intoxicated. <laughs> no, no, that's not. Can you imagine using that excuse back in the day with your parents? You come in a little tipsy, and they're like, have you been drinking? And you're like, no, 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 it was the vapor canopy. I, just, I had some Welch's grape juice, and all of a sudden it fermented. I can't explain. No, that is not what happened here. Noah got drunk because Noah got drunk, right? He started a vineyard. He was not going into the table grapes business. This is, this is for imbibing, and that is what he did, and he got intoxicated, and so that's how you get a guy, he got drunk, he got hot, he took his clothes off. That's what we have in this scene. It's embarrassing. And then in verse 22, it says that Ham, father, father of Canaan, he saw the nakedness of his father and he told his two brothers outside. So a couple things. In Old Testament culture, you did not look upon the nakedness of another man. I'd like to think that was still a part of our culture today, Okay. But the reason that that was a big no-no with the Jews is because they associated nakedness with the fall. When Adam sinned, what happened? He was aware that he was naked. And so it, it was a reminder of our shame and our sinfulness. And so it's a shameful thing uh, to, to be exposed in a public manner. The human body was created by God. It's a beautiful thing, but it, it is shameful when exposed. That's just something that goes along with our sin nature. And so here's Noah. Ham looks upon him, and what does he do? Japheth! Shem! Get over here! Look at the old man! Look at what he's done! <laughs> and he is just glorying and gloating over his father's unfortunate state. And here's this man, Noah, that's regarded by God as righteous. We've read that already. What happens when the righteous fall? 
Does the world sympathize with the righteous when they fall? Does the world seek to help the righteous when they fall? No, the habit of the world is to make fun of them. The habit of the world is to get as many people around you as possible to pile on and to mock and to deride. And we see this over and over and over. And even the religious community can join in on that behavior as well. And that is what Ham is doing here. He is trying to get people to mock the fallenness of his father. And so he's committing a sin right here. And his sin is worse than his father's sin. He's lost all respect for his father's authority. Now, what do his brothers do? Do they join in? It says in verse 23, Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. They, they see what their brother is doing. They do not comply with that. They don't want to discredit their father's testimony. They want to help him. They want to honor him. And so they cover dad up. That's what they do. I wish that we would all be like that whenever we see people that have made poor decisions. We don't need to kick them when they're down. The body of Christ is real good at that. We, we, just, we just mock one another whenever we fall. And whenever someone in the public eye takes a dive, what is our inclination? We want to hop online and comment on it. You know, the world needs to hear from me on this matter. No, they don't. No, they don't. And so in the next few verses, Noah wakes up. He realizes... What's happened to him? I don't know if somebody told him what Ham has done, but he's aware of this, that he's been publicly humiliated. And what comes next is a prophecy. He utters a prophecy over the next few verses, and there is included in that prophecy a curse. And it's a curse on Canaan, the fourth-born son of Ham. Now, you may be thinking, what's up with that? Ham sins and his son gets the curse? How come Ham didn't get the curse. Well, there's a concept. Let me just show you in Exodus 34, verse 6, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, a gracious, uh, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfastness and faithfulness. Uh, he forgives iniquity, it says. And then it goes on in verse 7 to say that uh, he will no, by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. And we call that a generational curse is what that's, been come, uh, that's come to be known as. And i got to be careful here because there are a lot of people that take this and they think that every sin that you struggle with, every physical problem that you have is the result of some curse that your great-great-granddaddy so-and-so was guilty of something and now you're stuck with this thing. And that's not what this is conveying at all. What we are seeing here is not God saying or Noah saying, I will punish your son for what you did, what he's saying is, I am predicting that what has budded in you will bloom in your offspring. And there is a heavy responsibility that God gives parents regarding what their children are going to live like. Is that true? Your behavior will determine in large part how your children are going to grow up. What you are is what they will become to an even greater degree. And so, is there a curse here? Yes, there is. Why isn't it on Ham? Well, Ham is a righteous man. He believes the promise of God. If he didn't, he wouldn't be on the ark. But he was. Canaan, in all likelihood, is not righteous. He is very likely someone that Noah is familiar with in terms of his behavior. And Noah is telling Ham, your unrighteous son is going to emulate this behavior. And it's going to be even worse. 
and he's going to produce a line that will be wicked. And we know that about Canaan's offspring. We see it in the Old Testament, the Canaanites. They are a vile people. They are a, a, an idolatrous, uh, brutal, uh, horrific people. You see the things that they're guilty of. It will remind you of Hamas, for crying out loud. The things that they do are, are just awful. They buried their own children in jars in the earth as an offering to the God of fertility. Is just one of the many things that we see them do. In the Old Testament, there's an enmity between the Canaanites and the righteous. All through the Old Testament, consistently wicked people, and they will be eradicated from the land. The line of Canaan does not exist today. All right? And so there is a prophecy regarding the three sons of Noah, not just Ham's children, but also Shem and Japheth. And here's how this prophecy goes in chapter 9, verse 25. It, sa it says, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, this is Noah talking, he says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant, and may God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. And as I read this story, I am reminded of something. It occurs to me that this all seems very, very familiar. What are we seeing here? We're seeing a righteous man who happens to mark the beginning of the human race at this point in time. And he partakes of a fruit in a forbidden manner. And as a result, his, his nakedness is uncovered and there's shame. And a curse ensues. And eventually there is a covering given to him that he did not produce on his own. Does that sound familiar? That's what happened to Adam. Adam was a righteous man. He marked the beginning of the human race. He partook of a fruit in a forbidden manner. What happened? His nakedness was uncovered. There was shame. A curse ensued. And eventually a covering was granted to him that he did not produce. God is retelling this story for your benefit and for mine to show us that the problem with man is still man. We've got a sin problem. I don't care if it's Adam, Noah, Moses, Abraham, any of these people that we hold up in high regard, they're all human. And the problem with people is that they're people. But that's not the only thing that this text demonstrates. This text is important because in your notes, it also shows us that God is sovereign over the nations. This prophecy talks about the descendants of these three boys, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And nations will emerge. And God is going to orchestrate all of that. And not only that, God is going to orchestrate how they interrelate with one another. And that is the sovereignty of our God. And so what I want to do now is I want to take these three sons. And I want to go through them one by one. And I want to look at their descendants. Now there's a lot of detail in here. Okay, So please just bear with me. We're going to learn some interesting stuff here together. But I want to show you who came from what line. And where they ended up geographically in the world. Let's start with Ham. The descendants of Ham. Now the first thing I want you to understand is that it's important to know that that curse that was a part of Noah's prophecy did not apply to all of Ham's lineage. Okay, in your notes, Noah's curse only affected the unrighteous Canaanites. Okay, it was not all of Ham's line, it was just Canaan and his line. And that is... The classic interpretation. Uh, there, there's an old theory from years past that observes that 
Uh, Ham's lineage eventually would lead to darker-skinned people, and so they tried to say, well, that's the curse right there, is that all dark-skinned people are, are the result of the curse on Ham. And that is a racist uh, piece of hogwash that is untrue. That is not the curse that we see in this prophecy by any stretch of the imagination. There's a curse, but it's not on Ham's line. It's on one member of Ham's line and his descendants, and that would be Canaan, and they don't exist anymore. And so you've got the Canaanites that are going to be eradicated by the likes of Abraham, uh, of Joshua. Later, David is going to be successful over them. And there will be an enmity between the descendants of, of Canaan, the Canaanites, and the descendants of Shem, or the Semites. Have you ever heard of a Semite? That's what we call the Jews. Now, the Semites would include more than just the Jews, but when we talk about anti-Semitic behavior, we're talking about uh, behavior against Jewish people. And so the Semites fought against the, the Canaanites and did away with them. And it's going to be Solomon who will make servants of them, as well as some of the Japhethites will make servants of them. But Noah did not curse all of Ham's descendants. And so we're going to see who else that includes. So take a look at Genesis 10. And in verse 6, it tells us who the sons of Ham are. You got Cush. You got a guy named Egypt or Mizraim, depending on your translation. You've got a guy named Put. And of course, you got Canaan. And so just going through these, Cush... In the Bible, uh, traditionally, that refers to the region called Ethiopia. That's where a lot of Cush's descendants end up. They end up in Ethiopia. Uh, Egypt, we, we know where that is. We know who the Egyptians are. They would descend from this guy, Mizraim, or Egypt. Uh, you've got Put, that is thought to be Libya. Libya, all right? And then, of course, Canaan, they, they stayed in Israel, and they were wiped out in Israel. But everybody else, where do they go? Where's Egypt and Libya and Ethiopia? Well, that is, that is Africa. And so the descendants of Ham would settle largely in Africa, but not just there. Because in your notes, Hamitic people settled much of Africa, but also Arabia, Asia, uh, the Pacific Islands, Australia, or the greater region, we'd call that Australasia. Uh, Tasmania would be a part of that, uh, New Guinea, okay? And of course, parts of the Americas over on this side of the world. But many Hamites would settle in Africa. Now, who are the sons of Cush that would go down there? It tells us in verse 7, you got somebody named Siba, uh, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, Sabteka. The sons of Ramah would be Sheba and Dedan. So some of these would settle in what became Saudi Arabia, that Persian Gulf area right there. Sheba uh, would settle in, in what we call today Yemen. Yemen, all right? Maybe you've heard, maybe you, from, from your reading of the Old Testament, you read about the Queen of Sheba. She came to visit Solomon, said she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And we know from archaeology that in Yemen you've got ancient peoples from that region that proselytized uh, to Judaism. Why would that be? Maybe it's because of the testimony of this queen of Sheba that visited with Solomon. Uh, and in that region, there's also a tradition that arose that, that people from that area, from that Yemen region, would send emissaries abroad to, to kings in other locales and they would bring them gifts. They would bring them gold, uh, silver, and various spices. Does that sound familiar? Do we know a story where kings from the east came to bring gold, silver, and spices 
to a child in Bethlehem. Absolutely. And then in verse 8, we see that this guy Cush, he fathered a Nimrod, and he was the first on earth to be a mighty man. Now, I'm not going to get too much into Nimrod today. He will play into our um, study of the Tower of Babel. We'll get to that in January. But um, I'll just say that he founded current-day Iran. Iran, okay? Uh, so there would be the kingdom of Babylon that would emerge from that. Iran, Iraq, that whole region right there. If you drop down to verse 13, you see that Egypt or, or Mizraim, he fathered a whole slew of people, and they've all got a, a suffix, an I-M suffix. So these are peoples. These are pluralities of peoples. It says that he fathered Ludim, Anamim, uh, Lehabim, Naphtuhim, Pathrasim, Kaslahim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtorim. You wonder why this doesn't get taught so much. It's hard to pronounce all these. Uh, verse 15, Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn. Sidon is thought to be the, uh, the Phoenician Empire. You ever heard of a guy named Hannibal? Not Hannibal Lecter, Okay. This is uh, Hannibal, the guy that rode elephants. His army was on the backs of elephants. They crossed the Alps, battled Rome, Hannibal of Carthage. That's this empire right here. And then it says there's a guy named Heth. Heth. Maybe you've heard of the Hittites in the Old Testament. You read about the Hittites. They were enemies of Israel. Uh, we didn't know that they existed outside of the Bible until we discovered a, uh, in the 1800s uh, archaeological evidence of a Hittite civilization in Asia Minor, and they were as large as the Egyptian Empire. Just a massive kingdom, and they got displaced through war, and they went east, and they took a different name, and they became known as the Kite, also pronounced Cathay, and there was a region called the Land of Cathay, and if you know anything about world history, that became what we call China. And the Hittites bore some similarities. To the ancient Chinese, their footwear was similar. It kind of turned up on the, on the toe of their boots. They, they cultured horses for warfare. It was previously thought that only the ancient Chinese did that. Uh, we've looked at their craniology, and it's very similar to the ancient Chinese. They worked with iron. And so we think at a minimum they contributed to Chinese culture. And it goes on to verse 16. It says, And the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Termites, the Stalactites, the Stalagmites. You know? Now pick one of those. You got the Sinites. The Sinites. They would have descended from somebody named Sin. They come from a man named Sin. They're the Sinites. And according to history, I think this sin guy was deified as someone to be worshipped because you see his name show up in other cultures that adopted that form of worship. King Sennacherib of the uh, Assyrians, his name means may sin multiply. Uh, it shows up in Mount Sinai. All right, And these guys come east. And they would have engaged in trade with other cultures. And there are ancient tablets that refer to them as the Sinai. And uh, ultimately, there was an early dynasty called the Tsin dynasty, T-S-I-N. And so that etymology evolved, and it went from the Tsin to the Chin. And they were the people of Tsinna, or Tchinna, which became China. And so these are the Chinese. And uh, there, in fact, there's an ancient center in China called the city of Xiangfu, 
which would be uh, means father of sin. And so you see how the nations emerge. Very interesting. Many unbelieving scholars look at this table of nations passage. They say this is the most reliable, in their estimation, the most reliable portion of your Bible is Genesis chapter 10 because of what we have learned. And they match it up. And it's very fascinating. So that's, that's Ham. The Hamites, very, very well-traveled peoples, all right? Asia, Africa, the Pacific Islands, all of that. Then we look at Shem. Let's take a look at Shem's descendants right here. If you go back to Genesis 9, uh, in that prophecy, Noah said that, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Do you know what the name Shem means? It means the name. The name. His descendants would be the people of Shem, people of the name. Uh, Noah says, blessed be the Lord. Uh, when he says Lord, he's not using the generic name of God. Uh, he's using Elohim. Elohim is the, uh, not Elohim, but rather uh, uh, Yahweh. Yahweh is the formal name of God. It's his proper name. So these are the people of the name. So if you notice here, what happened in Eden, Noah... Not Noah. Adam sins. God sacrifices, sheds blood for Adam. Adam has a son, Seth. It tells us in the early Genesis that Seth's descendants would call upon the name of the Lord. Here you've got Noah. He sacrifices. He has three sons. Which one becomes the chosen son? It becomes the one whose name means the name. Shem. And so the Redeemer is going to come through the line of Shem. You remember Noah said that you know, there would come a Redeemer through the line of man. Well, it's got to come through someone's line in particular. It's going to be this line right here, the line of Shem. And so whoever this Messiah, this Redeemer is, he will be a Shemite. He will be a Semite. He's going to be a Jew, you see. And so in your notes, these Semitic peoples, they include the chosen line for the Messiah. The Semites are going to include the Messiah. And we know that from Genesis 12. God will select Abraham. He's going to tell him, in your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So this Messiah is going to be a Semite. Uh, Genesis 10, verse 21, we go on and learn about Shem's descendants. It says that he's the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth. Children are born. So he starts off with this guy named Eber. What is, who is this? Why is he significant? Well, there's something about his name that's going to make the eyes of the Hebrews light up when they read this story. Because if you drop down to verse 24 in Genesis 10, it tells us that Arpachshad fathered Shelah, who fathered Eber. Eber. All right? Who wrote Genesis? Who did God use to write Genesis? Moses. What is Moses? He's a Semite, right? Who's he writing to? The Hebrews, okay? And he wants them to know where they came from. What does a bear mean? It's where we get our word Hebrew. We get our word Hebrew. He wants these Hebrews to know from whom they emanate. It starts with a Semite. This Eber is descended from Shem. So Shem is the one who is blessed. Moses wants to tell these Hebrews, newly liberated from Egypt, you come from this guy who is blessed. His son is Eber, and he is the father of all of you. Of all of you. Uh, the name Eber means to travel. It means to cross over, to go abroad. 
all right? Uh, the Hebrews were known as wanderers, right? Abraham wandered through Canaan. Uh, the sons of Jacob wandered down to Egypt. They stayed there for hundreds of years, but then they, they are liberated from Egypt. They begin to wander in the wilderness 40 years. And then they wander into Canaan, and they wander about under Joshua, and they, they have a conquest up there. And they are called the wanderers, the, the, the hab, Haburi, all right? The, or the Habiru, rather. The Habiru, the Hebrew, the wanderers, the dusty ones of Canaan. And so in your notes... You need to understand these Semitic peoples, they include Jews, they include more than just Jews, they include certain Arab tribes, they include those of of Babylonian, of Persian, of Iranian descent, etc. And so he goes on to unpack all this, verse 22, it says, the sons of Shem include a guy named Elam. Have you ever heard of the Elamites? The Elamites. Uh, You know who they were? They founded the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire. They're going to team up with a guy, a Japhethite by the name of Madai, Madai, uh, from him descended the Medes, the Medes and the Persians, the Medo-Persian Empire, major, major empire. Then you got a guy named Asher. Asher, what does that name sound like? How about this, the Assyrians, the Assyrian Empire. So you got the Persian Empire and the Assyrian Empire, two major Semitic world empires. They both come out of this line right here. And then we've read about Arpakshad and Lud, and Aram, uh, Lud and Aram settled in Mesopotamia. Uh, we don't know where Arpakshad settled. We got no clue, but we know his name here in this genealogy. But eventually, who descends from him? In verse 24, it's this guy, Eber. And all the Jews read that, and their hearts leap, because that's, that's us. They see that name, and they know who that is. And it says in verse 25, to Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg. Peleg means division. And it says, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Yoktan. So Peleg lived during the whole Tower of Babel episode, which we're going to learn about in January. How did, how did we all get divided at the Tower of Babel? God divided us by our languages. He confused us, and we all dispersed. So that's Peleg. And then he's got this brother, Yoktan. And the next six verses list the sons of Yoktan. And they're all going to go, and they're going to fill the Arabian Peninsula. And they're going to become a group of Semitic tribesmen. And they will later uh, intermarry with the Hamites. And that will produce many of the Arabic races that we have today. Okay? Now, where do you white folks come from? Huh? You just, you just grew up here in North Carolina. Well, you came from other places. And so, incidentally, maybe you're Latino. Maybe, maybe you want to know, well, I'm of Mexican descent. Where did that come from? Well, a lot of the, the Mexican peoples and, and the uh, peoples of the Americas are the product of, it's a combination of the Japhethites, whom we're going to learn about now, by way of uh, Hamitic peoples that settled in this hemisphere. And they produced uh, some of the people that we know as Latino. That's, that's just how this unfolded. But let's talk about Japheth. Who are the descendants of Japheth? If you go back to Genesis 9, uh, Noah says, May God enlarge Japheth. That's what Japheth means. means to enlarge, means to swell. He says, And let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. What does it mean that Japheth would dwell in the tents of Shem? If you're a Japhethite, what does that mean that you dwell in the tents of Shem? If you're a Japhethite Christian, is there a particular Semite that you owe everything to? When you open your Bible, 
What human hands were used of God to write that Bible? Were they not Semitic hands? That's right. God did not give his word to the Japhethite. He gave it to the Semite. He gave it to the Semite. And so when you pray and you thank God for the wonder of salvation, who did that salvation come through? Did it not come through the birth of a baby in Bethlehem? Where's that? Outside Jerusalem? Where's that? In Israel, right? 2,000 years ago, according to what? According to Hebrew prophecy. So we Christians, we owe our salvation, our faith, to Jesus of Nazareth. And so in your notes, this means that the Japhethites would historically embrace the Jewish Messiah. Now the Hamites, many of them would as well, but in greater numbers at first, it's going to be the Japhetic peoples. If you think about church history, this much is true. Uh, But it comes from the Jew originally, and it spreads through the line of Japheth. Jesus is going to tell the Samaritan woman in John 4, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Right? And then we see in Romans 1, Paul says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek, to the Greek who is of Japheth. God's going to tell Abraham, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. What is Abraham? He's a Semite. He's a Jew. All right? And so we see the sovereignty of God as this all unfolds. Now, where did these Japhethites land? We talked about where the Hamites ended up all over the place, Africa, Asia, in the islands, all of that. How about the Semites? Where did they end up? Well, they pretty much stayed put. They ended up down in Egypt, but they came back and they stayed largely in the Middle East. What about these guys, the Japhethites? Well, in your notes, the Japhethites, they they would settle much of Europe. They would settle the British Isles, uh, Scandinavia, Russia, Greece, Turkey, and get this, as far as India. That might surprise you. That might surprise you. Now check this out. There are about seven Japhethite sons listed in Genesis 10, verse 2 and following. It says, the sons of Japheth, and the first guy named is Gomer. You're already chuckling about Gomer. Some of you thought of Gomer Pyle, didn't you? Well, it might surprise you that this Gomer has a brother named Shaziam. You say, are you, are you telling the truth, Pastor Scott? No. No, I'm not. (laughs) Golly. No. This Gomer, let's call him Gomer. That sounds more scholarly, all right? Gomer. Gomer is believed to be the father of the Scythians. They would form most of Western and Eastern Europe early on. Uh, Some believe that uh, Germany comes from Gomer. Germany comes from Gomer. Uh, There's a region in Europe, Cumberland, they believe Old English would be Gomerland, all right? It's also called uh, Kimrie, and it gets its name from Gomer. You know what we call that today, that place? We call it Wales. Wales. Uh, if you glance down at verse 3, Gomer had a son named Ashkenaz. Have you ever heard of an Ashkenazi Jew? What is that? That's a Jew that settled in Germany, in the Rhineland, all right? Comes from Ashkenaz. Uh, we get the word Scandinavian from Ashkenaz. So if you're from Scandinavia, you probably emanated from that. And then there's a list of names. Magog, Madai, Yavan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras. 
And three of those names in Scripture always appear together. It's, it's uh, Magog, Tubal, and Meshech. You always see those together. If you were in our prophecy study in Ezekiel 38, you, you learned about the Gog-Magog invasion of Israel. The enemies of Israel in the future are going to invade her. Among them will be these nations, Magog, Meshech, and Tubal. Always mentioned together. Tubal, there's a river in Russia called the Tobal River. There is a city at its confluence called Tobolsk. Okay, that region was originally called Muscovy. We get the name Moscow from Muscovy, and we think it all comes from Meshech. Meshech. And so Magog, Tubal, Meshech. In Ezekiel, it says, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech. And Tubal, and the Hebrew word for chief prince is the word Rosh. You know where I'm going with that? Russia. That's where we get the word Russia. That's right. And you got that name Madai mentioned here. We've already talked about him, Medo-Persia. Okay. Uh, you see Yavan. Yavan looks like Javan. That's used countless times. Talks about Greece. That, that is Greece. Verse 3, the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, we've talked about, Rifath and Togarma. Rifath... Uh, there's a peoples you don't know about called the Paphlagonian people. Togarma would be Turkey. That would be modern Turkey. Verse 4, the sons of Yavan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kitim, and Dodanim. Elisha, uh, the Greeks by tradition, if anybody wanted to be like them, adopt their culture, they called that Hellenization, to be Hellenized. We believe that's a corruption of Elisha. Okay, and so this would be part of Greece. Come out of Yavan. Tarshish, what in the world is that? We think that has to do with Spain. There's an ancient colony called Tartessus. Uh, Tarshish, have you seen Tarshish in Scripture? Yeah, that's where Jonah fled to. God said, Jonah, I want you to go and preach to the Ninevites. He goes, no, and he runs off to Tarshish. Why? Because it's about as far from Nineveh as he can think. Nineveh would be in modern-day Iraq. He goes to Spain. Gets as far away from God as he thinks he can get. That was the ends of the earth as far as Jonah was concerned. And when Paul is wrapping up his ministry, where does he want to go? He wants to go to Spain. Says so in the book of Romans. So he's literally living out the Great Commission to be a witness in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth, Tarshish. Spain is the ends of the earth to Paul. And then you got Katim, uh, that would be the people who went north of Greece. They called the area that they ended up as Ma-Katim, Ma-Katim, Macedonia, Macedonia, north of Greece. Uh, Dodanim shows up in First Chronicles, slightly different spelling. It's there called Rodanim, that would be the island of Rhodes, you see. Isn't this amazing how this all comes together? So these Japhethites, they are also well-traveled. I said earlier they made it as far as India. Now that may surprise you, because we don't think of India as being like these other places. We've, we've, we've talked about a lot of Europe, a lot of Europe here, white folks, Caucasians. That's not India, right? So why do we think that they ended up in India? Well, this is not just about your melanin count. How did we get dispersed after Babel? What was it that divided us? Was it our skin color? No. It was our languages. And so you can learn a lot about how civilizations spread out based on language. You look at linguistics, and if you look at the languages of East and West, you realize there are some similarities, and there must have been a common linguistic ancestor, and it's been identified as this dead language 
called Sanskrit. Maybe you've heard of Sanskrit. Many of the ancient Indian manuscripts were written in Sanskrit. And what's fascinating is, if you look at, you look toward the West, you look at Greece, in their mythology, they, they come from uh, uh, an ancestor, they believe, called, uh, what's the name here, uh, Iapetus, Iapetus, okay? Uh, sounds like Geppetto, the guy that made Pinocchio. I think it's derived from that. Iapetus in Greek mythology, but in Hindi mythology, Hindu mythology, in India, they have a flood account. By the way, there are hundreds of flood stories. Where do you think they all got their stories? It's because there was an actual flood. There was an actual flood. And it was the flood of Noah. But in their mythology, who is the main figure in that flood story? It's a guy named Japeti. So you got in the Greek mythology, Japetus. In Indian mythology, you got Japeti. What do they both sound like? Japheth. Japheth. And so peoples far and wide, east and west, immigrated, emanated from Japheth. And as we wind this down, verse 5, it says, From these coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. And as we said, here, here we got the Japhethites. They're going to dwell in the tents of Shem. Meaning, they're going to adopt the Jewish Messiah as their own. They're going to believe on him. And that's what we see happen. It's a prophecy of church history. As that gospel goes out, it, it goes and it spreads across Europe from Asia Minor and, and keeps going west. And eventually it's going to come to our shores. It's going to come to the Americas. It's going to go down into South America. So has Japheth moved into the tents of Shem, spiritually speaking? Yes, we've been grafted in. But guess what? Not just us Japhethites, also the Hamites. You're going to see peoples of every shade, of every tongue that are going to be grafted in. They're going to join in. All Gentiles are going to adopt this Jewish Messiah. Because you know what's really exciting to me, and I love this. Historically, perhaps the churches of Europe and people that look like me, were, were, we made up the Christian nations. But you know what's really exciting is that if the rapture were held today, do you know what the majority of the faces going up with Christ are going to look like they're going to be Asian, they're going to be black, they're going to be brown, they're from all over the world. Because he calls all men to himself. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And what's interesting here, when you study the scripture, in the Bible, the gospel never starts out going east. It's always west. Always west. Starts where? Jerusalem. Comes out from Jerusalem. Goes west. Galatia. Paul takes it into Asia Minor. Paul wants to come back. Go east. The Holy Spirit stops him. There's a vision. He's sent to Macedon. He goes up to Macedonia. Gospel keeps going. Spreads into Europe. What happens? Roman Empire crumbles, falls apart. You got all these Japhethite people. They come in there. They become Christians. And you have the nations of Europe. They're Christian nations, at least in the beginning. And then the gospel keeps going. It crosses over into the Americas. It goes down into Africa, all right? You know what's going to happen eventually? It's going to circle the globe. You know where the biggest revivals in the world are right now? They're in Korea. 
They're in the Pacific Islands. There's revival. You don't hear about it, but it's happening. The underground church in China is on fire. And it's always gone from the east to the west. And it's going to keep going west. We're going so far west, we're reaching countries that we think of as east. And where's it going to end up eventually? Right back where it started. In Jerusalem. When's it going to take root there? When the Son of Man returns and he establishes his kingdom and he reigns from David's throne. And you see the epic saga of the Word of God. God's incredible plan hatched in Genesis 3, prophesied by way of the sons of Noah in Genesis 9, with a genealogy that gives us the roadmap in Genesis 10. And as we're going to see in Genesis 11, a rebellion that God uses to disperse man. And then divinely and sovereignly, he's going to weave that gospel. He's going to run a thread through human history. And the Lord is going to accomplish his purpose. And as I wrap this all up, the reason, another reason that this text is not just something that you skip is because in your notes, our only true knowledge comes from God's word. Our only true knowledge. All of this book is valuable. It's all profitable. Even the parts that you, you don't tend to hear about all that much because you don't know how to meditate on the name Gomer. There's a whole, not, whole lot more here, folks. If it weren't for Moses writing Genesis, what would you know? about where you came from? What would you know about the lineage of the Messiah? What would you know about the post-flood world? Heck, what would you know about the pre-flood world? No, you see what God has done. He came from Adam through Noah, through a guy named Shem, through a guy named Eber, to a man called Jesus of Nazareth, who holds the only hope for all who would ever live. Red, yellow, black, and white. All are precious in his sight. Let's bow. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the, the wonder, uh, the grand adventure, the big picture that is the word of God. And we stand humbled, Lord, as we come to a close in our first section of this study of Genesis. We know that more exhilarating things await us, God, but would you guide us? Would you give us a passion, not only for your word, but to understand our place and your plan? I pray your blessing upon everybody here today, every Hamite, every Semite, every Japhethite. But those who name the name of Christ, what we are, no matter our ethnic background, we are children of God. We are those who follow the Messiah. I pray your blessing upon us all, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.